Hello again. I'm James Ahrens, the ADHD author and veterinarian. I call this podcast Perfuming Gasoline. It's about being under the teenage spell of surging hormones. Last episode, I introduced y'all to Susie, my first horse, but I failed to emphasize Melody, my first girlfriend. Without Mel, I would never have thought to bring a horse into my life. I was living in Fountain Valley next to Huntington Beach, the surfing capital of the world, according to many local surfers at the time. The area's focus was on water sports, not four-legged critters big enough to ride. Because of Melody, I traded my surfboard for a horse saddle. I met Mel during my junior year of high school. She was the perfect first girlfriend, interested in the things I said, encouraging me as I thought out loud. My hormones steamed and bubbled with this newfound attention from a pretty girl. My heart swelled and my ego grew each time Mel smiled and nodded at my every word. That's why I'm dedicating this next song, Sugar Sugar, to Mel. It's one of Mary's early tunes. Yeah. 
Chapter 3. Perfume and Gasoline I met Melody during my junior year in high school, immediately jumping into a committed relationship way too soon. Neither of us dated before and we were totally inexperienced. It made our hasty, inappropriate decision even more egregious. But everyone needs to experience, enjoy, and afterward endure our first love. It just makes us stronger, I suppose. I was drawn to Mel because she was pretty and she liked me. But it was the strength of her family that really caught my attention. Unlike the war zone I came from, Mel's household was stable, mostly quiet, accommodating, and loving. My home life was chaotic. There was continual discord starting from the top. My parents were divorcing. It was a long, drawn-out decision spanning 12 years of iffiness in the husband and father department, and that created an undue hardship on my mom. Dad finally committed to his longtime girlfriend after we moved to California. He left home a few months before I did. Mel and I became inseparable, spending many hours together to the exclusion of anyone else. I was still living at my house, but we found physical closeness after school because Mel was allowed to drive her dad's car. Gas was cheap, but that didn't matter because the car seemed always to be full of gas. We spent the afternoons driving along Highway 1 to San Juan Capistrano, Laguna Beach, and Newport Beach, and rarely left the vehicle. The intimacy inside far outweighed any desire to sightsee. Just like all kids my age, I was a music freak. Music was as much discussed subject, and all types of music equipment were must-have items. I purchased a stereo for my room. It came with headphones, so I could listen to music deep into the night without upsetting anyone. The warehouse sold albums as low as $2.99, and I taped songs onto tapes by connecting the cassette deck into the stereo amplifier. Concert going became a must-do activity, which I used advantageously to elevate my status in my friend's eyes. I worked hard to portray the image of a successful dude. I had a girlfriend, access to a car, could procure concert tickets, and arrange transport to said show. Even drugs were available through me to my friends. Besides my own enjoyment, it was a means to impress others, either by buying their friendship or wowing them with jealousy. I borrowed Dad's 1966 Cougar when I arranged a road trip to San Diego to see Jethro Tull. I drove down Highway 5 to San Diego with three others. Mel's brother Kevin was in the passenger bucket seat. His best friend Nina was in the back. Mel sat on the hump between the two front seats behind the stick shift because that was the place that the girlfriend sat in those days. Just south of San Clemente, a white van came next to us making overtures to pull us into a race. It would speed up get about a quarter mile in front of us, then slow down until we caught up. If I sped up passing the van, it would speed up to us even faster. Eventually I was going pretty fast and the van was keeping up, but suddenly it dropped back and was soon out of sight. A few seconds later I realized why he dropped from the race. With the red lights of a patrol car blazing behind me, I pulled over to the shoulder and stopped. I looked around at my passengers. Are we cool? Is everyone okay? I asked. They nodded. Nina was eating something. What are you eating? He's eating a joint. Good. Is that it? Everybody nodded. I got out to talk to the CHP officer. Walking his way, I met him between our two vehicles. What do you think you're doing? He yelled at me over the onshore breeze and the whiz of passing cars. I'm going to a Jethro Toll concert with my girlfriend. It was hard keeping up with you. I clocked you at 115 miles per hour, and it wasn't until you got a flat tire that I caught up with you. I didn't know anything about a flat tire, but when I looked at the right rear where the officer was pointing, I realized he was right. 
Oh, I see. Hang on. I walked back to my door and opened it. Can you guys change the tire? It went flat. Kevin and Nina climbed out. I handed them the keys and they went about changing the flat tire while I returned to my conversation with Mr. CHP. Why were you going so fast? He asked in an exasperated manner, looking at me as though I suffered from low intelligence. I guess I wasn't paying attention, I lamely replied, kicking at the dirt with my shoe. It hit the toe of the officer's boot, smudging the shiny black polish with dirt. Now why did you do that? I didn't mean to do it, I replied hurriedly as I bent down to rub off the scuff mark with my right hand. After lecturing me more fully on the dangers of fast driving, the officer wrote me a ticket for speeding at 95 miles per hour, which was 25 miles per hour over the posted speed limit on that part of the San Diego freeway. All of us were a bit shaken as we continued to San Diego. The concert was excellent. It didn't matter that Nina ate up his pot. Joints were being passed around through the audience. The smoke in the air made the stage lights look strange and eerie. It was an intense and enthusiastic ambiance which could probably be compared to the energy level of an event we now call a rave. The next day after school, I preoccupied myself with fixing the flat tire, making a story for Mom. When we were changing the flat, a CHP officer stopped and cited us for a fix-it ticket, so I expect to be summoned to court later in the month. When the court date arrived, Mom and I drove to the Orange County Courthouse. As we shuffled into the antechamber, there were seats along the wall. I suggested she sit outside while I talked to the judge. Where is your guardian, Mr. Ahrens? the judge asked. I'm here with my mom, but she's tired and wants to sit in the hall out there, I replied. Go and bring her inside the courtroom, he told me. Mom was furious when she realized my scam. She didn't talk to me at all on the way home. As fall approached, I focused on swimming. Swim season occurs during the winter months, and in spite of my brief stint at drug selling, I was allowed to stay on the Fountain Valley High School swim team. The California swim team was very different from the way we did it in Chicago. In Southern California, swimming is a way of life. The swimming pools are outside. Back east, we'd have a hockey game instead of a swim competition. But here we walked outside to huge crystal clear pools with clouds of steam rising. Unlike the indoor pools back in Chicago, there was no chlorine gas buildup. It was like summer swimming all year round. Toward the end of my junior year, I lost enthusiasm for swimming. A Saturday meet was scheduled, but I didn't feel like going. I was hanging around the house about 9 a.m. wondering what to do with my free day when I heard a knock at the door. Mom answered. She came to find me, explaining Coach Bray was here to talk. I met him at the doorway. We stopped by to pick you up. You need to get your suit and goggles, he said. Behind him was a big yellow school bus with the entire swim team. Coach Bray asked the driver to take a special detour to my house just to pick me up. I hurriedly gathered up my gear and jumped on the bus. That renewed my interest in competitive swimming. I placed fifth in the conference in the men's 100-yard breaststroke and planned to work harder next year. The swimming programs available in Southern Cal at the time were light years away from those offered in the Midwest. Determined to become a stronger swimmer, I enrolled in the master swim program at Golden West College. These were the real swimmers, the future pros of the sport. Some of them, such as Shirley and Jack Babishoff, were teammate swimmers from Fountain Valley High School, who later made their names known by winning Olympic medals. As I was now in the water with future Olympiads, the workouts were hard and became tedious. Still, I continued evening workouts throughout the fall of my senior year. These would complement my training at the high school level when the season started in January. Mel was supportive too, dropping me off and picking me up two hours later to drive us back to my house. My family was usually preoccupied watching TV in the den, so we found solitude upstairs in my bedroom. 
One night, a few weeks after Thanksgiving, Mel went home, and her mother saw her blouse was inside out. She had to know we were intimate. Right before Christmas, I added up my credits and realized I could graduate early. I was done with high school and ready to move forward toward my life goals. When Coach Bray called me to see what my plans were for the upcoming swim season, I told him I was going to graduate early and would not be available for the swim team. He paused and asked me what my plans were. I said I wanted to apply for a draftsman job I saw in the paper. I moved a drafting table and drafting machine into my bedroom and was planning on using skills learned from my classes to prepare diagrams. I also wrote a letter to the architecture school at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo to see if I qualified for their program. The letter was not at all formal in appearance. I printed it out with an ink pen and lined paper and mailed it in a small letter envelope. A few weeks later, I received a reply from the admissions office telling me I needed to get a few years of college completed before I could apply to the architecture school. Still, I felt little remorse for dropping swimming. My future arrived early. I was finished with high school. Mel added up her credits and figured she could graduate early, too. She started working full-time with her mother in the accounting division of Max Factor Cosmetics in Hollywood. I found a full-time job at a local hardware store, National Lumber Company, as a garden associate. I loved the job. I enjoyed watering the plants, keeping them green and vibrant. I loved the smell coming from the fertilizer bags and was happy arranging various garden accessories. My immediate boss was a fellow named Byron, and I was promoted to garden manager when he left. Now I was privileged. I could walk behind the service counter and open up the file cabinet to check what orders arrived and what the product pricing was. I was moving up the small corporate ladder. My biggest problem happened during lunch breaks. We were supposed to check out for a full hour. For me, that time was terrible. Because I was bored during breaks, I started clocking back in after lunch a little earlier each day. After about two weeks, I was spending a mere ten minutes in the break room and going right back on the floor. Danny, the manager of the store, promoted me to plumbing and electrical. He wanted me to light a fire under the butts of the three old geezers there. However, I could not change the section around, failing to get the overall picture and was moved to hardwood and paneling. I looked forward to work every day. No longer in high school, I was still dating Mel and still living at home until the day I became entangled in a horrible argument with Mom. I suspect the problem had to do with how disconnected I was with the family. She was right but it didn't make me want to change. Instead, I moved into Mel's house to share a room with Darren, Mel's younger brother. My departure from my family was uneventful. I simply went to my old bedroom, packed a pillowcase full of clothing, and left my house. End of chapter. Thanks, Mary, and thank you, Brian Ortiz, for the wonderful narration. Mel and I married a year or so after that. Did I get Mel pregnant, you ask? Mel and I stopped having sex six months into our dating because I converted to her faith Mormonism. Why did I decide to become a Mormon? Well, I guess I needed stability, and Mel's family was my example. I felt love, kindness, and acceptance from the first day I visited. Thinking this was due to their religion, I immersed myself into the teachings of the Mormon Church, and I accepted the idea the Church was there with all the answers to my worries. So I embraced Church doctrine, eschewing worldly distractions to focus on being a strong fellow in my ward. 
Church machinery is designed to make married families. So as soon as I joined the church, it became an unwritten pact among the brethren I would marry Malsoon. And I never questioned this wisdom until the day of my wedding. Walking down the aisle, I pushed lingering doubts to the surface, but these were immediately quashed because of my devoutness. It was only when Mel and I returned home from the reception did my facade crack. Chapter 4. New Family Mel's family was Mormon, quiet and tight-knit. Unlike the chaos my family exhibited, there was little arguing and much acceptance. I loved this new sense of peace, and I was glad I moved. Just like any other teenager, I worried about my future as well as the future of the world in general. Once a person begins focusing on regional and global affairs, one is flooded with natural disasters and man-made horrors. Reading the widely available Watchtower booklet from the Jehovah's Witnesses only reinforced my worry mankind was on the fast path to destruction. My sense of foreboding worsened because of the chaos occurring within our home. Mom and Dad were getting divorced, and Mom was overwhelmed trying to juggle finances with the needs of seven children. As I melded myself into Mel's household, I was impressed with their acceptance and respect, two things I craved severely. Feeling this was due to their religion, I immersed myself into the teachings of the Mormon church. I signed up for lessons. Two young missionary fellows came to Mel's house twice a week to explain Mormon precepts to me. During one of these sessions, I felt it was time to say yes to this new religion. The atmosphere in the room was quiet and somber. Not many words were spoken. Flushed with a religious fervor, realizing the Holy Spirit was with me, I accepted the Mormon precepts and set up my baptism on July 14, 1973. The way I viewed it, baptism was a contract with God. If I lived my life guided by certain teachings, then peace and happiness would come my way. To me, the facets of the religion were as plain as day. Almost overnight, I turned into a religious zealot, organizing Monday nights into family home evening and bringing Mel's wayward family back into the Mormon fold, urging them to fast with me one Sunday a month. During the time of this religious learning and exploration into the doctrines of the church, Mel and I stopped having sex. Being newly minted Mormons, we agreed unmarried sex was wrong because the church forbade it. The church was becoming paramount to me. After my baptism, I expanded my lunch hour at National Lumber on Sundays to an hour and a half, which allowed me time to have Mel pick me up, take me to church, and drop me off again. I suspect my ardent beliefs were irritating to everyone in Mel's home, but I didn't care. I was becoming an accountable brother in the ward a person who could be counted on to perform needed duties. I was assigned to teach Sunday school to 12 to 15-year-old boys, and also took over duties as their assistant scoutmaster. Although Mel and I graduated with our friends from Fountain Valley High School in June, we became a separate entity, rarely sharing dates with others. Once we became a couple, we became so codependent on one another we were inseparable, to a pathological extent. In the summer of our graduation, my brother Mike and his friend Richard invited me out to the desert to ride their new dune buggy, which they built in Mom's garage. They drove over to Mel's house early on a Saturday morning to pick me up, 
I gathered my things and jumped into the station wagon behind the driver. Just as we were about to drive off, Mel came running out of the house crying. She could not bear to let me be away from her for the next day and a half. I felt guilty about the excursion and told Mike and Richard I'd better not go. I left the vehicle and watched the guys drive off to the desert without me. I felt like I did the right thing. It was more important to take proper care of Mel than to spend the next day and a half with friends. Both of us still planned to attend college. I was awarded a scholarship at any college in California because of my good grades and high school SAT score, but remained undecided about my future career. Choosing to attend my first year of collegiate studies at a junior college, I enrolled in Orange Coast College to take basic core courses, anticipating transfer to a larger university when I decided what I wanted to do. I was ready for college. I had been working full-time for nine months, and now it was time to prepare for my future. When I put in my resignation at National Lumber, Danny called me into his upstairs office and told me I would be promoted to assistant store manager and have a nice raise if I stayed. I didn't think twice about his offer. I didn't even ask what my new pay would be. I told him I received a scholarship to go to USC and I needed to follow that path. Working full-time, Mel and I saved as much money as we could and made plans to marry in October 1973. I was just 18. Bishop Nielsen, who presided over our wedding, previously blessed Mel and I separately by summoning the power of the Holy Ghost to look into our futures. We believe this to be a moment of enlightenment, where God spoke through his mouthpiece. As I knelt in front of the bishop, he placed his hands on my head and extemporaneously recited a three-page litany of blessings and vague predictions for me. The blessing mentioned my upcoming marriage many times, putting it on a full speed ahead course to happen. Mel's parents accepted the idea, and Mel was looking forward to it. Deep down, though, I had a problem with the marriage, but I suppressed the doubt explaining it away as an unfaithful, unmormon-like thought. I agreed to the wedding because my religion and Mel's family supported it. When I asked myself why I was marrying Mel, I replied, because she deserves someone to take care of her. I felt this was the proper thing to do. Like any groom or bride, I suppose my wedding filled my mind with questions. I pushed these issues away and became involved with the ceremony of the event. Richard told me Mel looked like Ursula Andress. I really liked that. Held at the Green Book Clubhouse, the reception served alcohol, but only because of my family. It wasn't until Mel and I drove home from the wedding that my approval facade fell apart. Mike placed Lingberger cheese on top of my manifold, so the drive from the clubhouse to home was foul-smelling. Although he had done this as a joke, I called him up to complain. He told me to lift the hood and take the cheese off the manifold. I broke down crying. I sobbed to tell him he needed to fix it. So he drove over and cleaned up his prank. After regaining my composure, Mel and I drove to San Diego for our honeymoon, spent Saturday night at the Holiday Inn, visited SeaWorld the next day, and returned home that evening. We soon settled into a routine. I went to college full-time at Orange Coast, and Mel drove into Hollywood with her mom. We were still living at her parents' house and attending to our church duties. Life was good. End of chapter. At the end of the night, the harsh critic of truth emerged from the fanfare and lets of religious pompousness. Soon my newfound religious fervor would fade, and the harsh reality would set me adrift and alone again.
You can follow the story on my blog, JE8DVM, or you can pick it up on Spotify. My blog has pictures, too. Once on my blog's front page, go to the menu, pick My Books, and click on Fear of Failure. The entire autobiography can be purchased as an old-fashioned paper book or an e-book, as well as an 11-disc audiobook set or can be downloaded from the audiobook site ACX. More details are on my website, JEADVM. I'll be back next week with another blog. Thanks for listening.